All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm Colin Cadmus, a lifelong salesperson, two times VP of sales, and current founder of my own strategic advisory and executive coaching firm. We have a great guest lined up for today, but before we dive in, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Prehired, which helps you start your six-figure sales career. Enroll in the Prehired program today and get lifetime access to the training, mentorship, resources, and community that will not only start your sales career, but continuously take it to the next level. Go to prehired.io forward slash Colin to apply and be bumped to the top of the list today. Now let's get into it. Today we have Wiley Sorelli, who I met back in 2012 when I left my retail uh, management job in Providence, Rhode Island and moved to New York City to find a sales job. I ended up working at Wiley's company called Single Platform, which had just been acquired for $100 million the month prior. Single Platform had it all, world-class culture, world-class leadership, world-class sales training, so it was the perfect place for me to start my career. Uh, and in many ways, I credit my success to Wiley and the amazing company he built. Not only did I get my first sales job uh, and work my way into leadership at Single Platform, but Wiley also introduced me to my next CEO who hired me to be a first-time VP of sales. Uh, Wiley has an incredible career story going from dropping out of school to launching Seamless Web with Jason Finger, which had a $300 million exit, and then founding Single Platform, which had a $100 million exit, and then leaving to go do some work with VCs, and then founding yet again another company called Good Uncle. What makes his story particularly exciting for this podcast is that he's a sales founder. He's a salesperson through and through and amongst the best you'll ever meet. He's the kindest, smartest, most humble person I've had the honor of working with. Uh, without further ado, Wiley, welcome to the show. I don't know if you should interview me after that intro. <laughs> I'm just disappoint everyone. World, a lot of world classes in there. Flattered, but happy to be here. Sadly, came to this face to face. No, I mean, it, it, it's the truth, right? And, and I took time to write that because it, it was hard to condense down like everything that, that you mean to me. Um, because really, you know, and, and, and most of my audience knows this, like I spent the first four years of my career in a job that I didn't like. I graduated school at the peak of the recession in 2008. I got into retail management in, in Rhode Island and I learned a lot, right? It was a good experience, but it was clearly not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I remember just packing a U-Haul and moving back to New Jersey at 26 years old, trying to figure out what to do with my life. And that's when I came across an ad for single platform for entry level sales. And here I am four years out of school. Entry level is, is not really where I, I saw myself, right? I, I felt like I was ahead of that curve, but uh, I knew I needed to do something different. And I had gone to work with my brother-in-law at the time who was in sales and, and he worked at College Humor. And he said, just come by the office, like see if See if you like the vibe. And at the time, I thought he was going to give me a job, um, but he really just wanted me to like see the environment and, and kind of see if it felt like it was right for me. And this is like, you know, ping pong tables and people standing up on the phones crushing sales. And anyway, I, I got obsessed with it and he wasn't going to hire me. So I had to find entry level. And that's when I stumbled across single platform. Um, I remember emailing Corey Grude back in the day, trying to, trying to get an interview. And I was probably amongst thousands that were sending notes to her. So it took a long time to get in touch. It was right after the acquisition. So you guys were, were hot, fresh off the press, like media was everywhere. Uh, and I just didn't give up. I was singularly focused, no pun intended on getting a job at single platform. And I eventually did. And I don't know if you know this, but I remember the day I walked in for my interview, I went into the bathroom before I walked in for the interview. I'm taking a, taking a piss, just getting ready, like and I'm nervous and stuff. And someone walks in next to me and, and, and goes to the urinal next to me and I look up and it's you. And I'm like, oh shit. 
<laughs> like that's the CEO. And that was the first time I ever saw you. And, and, I, and I nodded at you, uh, you know, we said hi. And uh, I don't think we got into a full conversation because I was just nervous. But that was the first time I ever saw you. And you had a backwards hat on and flip flops. And I'm like, wow, this place is. Uh... <laughs> I was like, this place is awesome. But so anyway, you know, just for, for those who don't know, like single platform, uh, uh, you know, Wiley started in, in Seamless Web, which in New York is, it's now merged with Grubhub. So if those from the West Coast, everyone knows Grubhub, Seamless in New York is, is on every single delivery drivers, you know, hanging from their, their bike handle, the bags that say Seamless, they're stamped on every restaurant door. It's a big deal here. You guys sold that for 300 million. So, I mean, take it away, man. Start wherever you want to. I, I know your trip to New Jersey and, and just like, or sorry, trip to New York for, for college. And then you ended up working with Jason, but however you want to start it, like just, just dive in. Sure. So uh, let's see here. I dropped out of NYU when I was 19, about a week in my sophomore year. After I forget dropping. why. Was there, was there a specific reason you dropped out? I forget that. I got, got really good at dropping out. I dropped out of Syracuse uh, that, that summer. Really, was a, a, a big reason to, to, to get a job, take a year off of school, make some money, okay. and go to a school where I could like, help support my family at the same time. Uh, New York was a place where you could you know, work and go to school. I got into NYU, very good school, so I was happy about that. And about a week in, um, met the founders of Seamless Web and had a decision to make whether I you know, would work at the same time as I go to school or take a year off and really dedicate myself. And I remember my grandfather saying, um, find, a, find, a, find a founder who's solving a big problem that you admire uh, and make yourself irreplaceable. And so for me, I was like, if I can work here full time for a year doing sales, uh, I feel like I can really, you know, make an impact at this company and maybe I'll have a future there uh, and, ma and make more money. So I decided at uh, 19 to drop out for the second time and I actually ended up dropping out two, two more times. <laughs> uh, never made it a week beyond a week my uh, sophomore year. But that, that was, say, I'd say, the beginning of, of my career. I was doing sales before then, but, you know, not in full-time capacity. And this was, you were doing door-to-door -door sales, right? This was not like when inside sales was a big thing or were you doing it over the phones? I know, it was, it was, it was door-to-door. -door. My first door-to-door -door was selling Domino's coupons. Uh, <laughs> literally going to like 100 houses a day. It was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. And I had like, a, it was like, you could sell it for $20. I kept anything over $10 and it included like a free pizza, free pizza, and then all these other, other, other coupons. And um, man, if you want to get used to, uh, being told no, that is, that is a, a great way to do it. So, you know, going door to door to restaurants, although it may seem like a difficult task, is nothing compared to going door to door, door uh, when you're 17, 18 years old in all these random neighborhoods because you're the last person anyone wants to see. Selling coupons too. Did you, did you eat a lot of Domino's? You, you're a healthy guy. I bet you put on some weight during that job. I did not. I didn't no? Even, no, I was so broke. Yeah. I mean, I moved to New York City. I had like a a backpack, $200, and a blow-up mattress. I remember telling you the story when you started. I think my mattress popped about you know, a week into to, to living in New York. So I basically would try to fill up my blow-up mattress and go to sleep before it hit the floor. Uh, I ended up just sleeping on the floor for, I mean, I don't know how long, probably like eight months or so. And uh, friends would come over and they'd see all I had in, the, in this one little eight-by-eight eight, uh, room was just a, a, a deflated airbed. And I used to be like, oh, wow, I don't, I don't remember that popping. It must have just happened today. But, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. 
everyone has a struggling story when it comes to New York. So that was mine. So you got started at Seamless. How many, were there other people selling? What, like how many people were in the company when you met Jason? Yeah, so it's Jason, Paul, Todd, Stephanie, myself. Uh, I'm one of their ops person. And um, really, we're all, all of us were doing sales, uh, both to the restaurants and to the law firms. Um, and I wrote a business plan and gave it to Jason and Paul and said, I want to take over the restaurant side of the business. Uh, I want to figure out what makes these uh, restaurant owners' minds like tick. And I think I can figure out how to sell to them. So I took a few days off and noticed that you know, restaurant owners were either really nice to you um, if you walk in as a customer or really rude to you if you were there to sell. Uh, and so the idea was, how can I get them to be really nice to me if they're, if they're selling to me? So I ended up flipping the script, which is instead of calling a place and saying, hi, can I meet with you, blah, 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 which already sounds like a sales script, right. um, I would call them and say, hi, I manage the food learn for you know, X law firm in the neighborhood, which I did, or X bank, and I'm considering opening an account with your restaurant or this other one, I had some questions, so I flipped it around. And then that really took off. I managed the whole restaurant side of the business. Seamless was profitable after about nine months. Um, and then we really started to explode a couple of years later with the consumer site taking off. So then I managed all sales and uh, marketing and expansion to about 20 different markets and, um, and a decent amount of, of product on the vendor side. In a way, like you've been a pioneer, right? Of, the, of the, the technology side of the food industry, right? Thinking back to it, like I remember the story and I don't know how much of it I remember is accurate. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when you guys started out seamless, this was like people were sending in faxes to order food, right? And yeah. that's what's evolved into you opening up an app on your phone and literally picking out whatever you want to eat. And it shows up at your house in 20 minutes. Uh, I mean, like, that's incredible, right? That's something that's changed literally everyone's life in, in the United States and beyond uh, forever. And you guys had something to do with that. I remember the story about um, your marketing campaign idea that you did for Seamless, which for anyone who's been to New York, you know what Seamless is. And it's for usually one of two reasons. One is you see the delivery drivers riding around and they all have bags of food hanging off their handlebars in a white bag that says Seamless and red on it. And there's also stickers that say Seamless on the door of every single restaurant. Um, that was you, right? The, the bags, that was your idea? Yeah. yeah, basically the idea was, and I asked Jason what my budget was and he didn't have a budget for me. So I had, I had no money to work from. Um, and we wanted to be marketing to the, the consumers that were using our restaurants and otherwise. And so the cheapest way of doing that was, you know, most all these restaurants said thank you bags. And so I went to this bag distributor, agreed to buy millions of bags, and then went to the restaurants so they could put their name on one side, our name on the other side, and then did other marketing things like, you know, radar restaurant five stars or four stars and restaurants would buy them. So restaurants were saving money. Um, and we were paying or making money off these bags. So that was probably the biggest, you know, marketing initiative and our first marketing initiative we, we ever had. Got it. So how did you go from, from being that individual contributor, you know, closing restaurants, getting them signed up to the platform to becoming such a prominent leader in, in the business? I think I just tried to focus on doing one thing really, really well and be basically becoming the, the master of being able to sell to this category, so restaurants. Um, and I focused on it day and night and figuring out the exact script in order to get the most amount of meetings, most amount of meetings held and the most closest. Uh, and so once I figured out how to do that, then it was just a matter of, you know, how many times can I replicate this over with different salespeople and how quickly can I onboard a sales team? So, you know, Gail Goodman from Constant Contact constantly talked about, um, uh, testing the model, tuning it, and scaling it. So I tested to figure out how to sell it. I tuned 
did and they made sure I understood the metrics and everything and then scaled it by onboarding all these people. So how long were you with Seamless before you got to the point of bringing on a team underneath you? Uh, I think it was a couple, a couple of years. Oh, so you grinded out for a while. It yeah, didn't happen yeah. Fast. We, we, yeah. We weren't we weren't uh, particularly well funded at the time. It only raised a few hundred thousand. Stephanie Lasker, who you know, was, yep. was my first uh, intern, and then became our first hire. So mm-hmm. I think that was probably yeah, two three years after after we started, um, and then it started taking off. And by the time I left, there was hundreds of people that that were in our you know the division that I managed. Cool. So let's fast forward to that. So the business takes off. It's growing really fast. When did it sort of get to the point of, you know, starting to have conversations with Aramark about the acquisition? So that was in 2006. So I joined in in 2000. So six years later and uh, Aramark, we had a a deal where we had a five-year earnout starting in the year 2006. Okay. I was 26 at the time. Uh, the whole team stayed on board and then pretty much everyone left in January 2010, which is when I started uh, single platform. Got it. So, and it was a $300 million exit, right? With Aramark? Yeah, the number's not disclosed, but you could say it's around that number. But roughly in that ballpark. At the time, that had to be, I mean, it had to be amongst the largest tech acquisitions in New York, right? Because I think single platform was as well, if I remember. Correctly. Yeah, it was definitely definitely one of the biggest ones. Uh, That's incredible. Top three or so uh, at, at the time. I mean, there was, you know, when, we, when, when CMO started, it was 99, 2000. Like, people didn't have internet on their phones. Uh, right, Google, right. Google had just launched. So it, there weren't, weren't a lot of tech or, you know, internet companies being acquired at the time. Um, but uh, right around that time, then all these companies started being uh, acquired very quickly. Do you think that Jason, so for those who are listening, Jason Finger was the, the founder of Seamless, who Wiley went to work for, who, by the way, I'm also hoping to get on at some point. When Jason started this, like I remember talking to him, it sounds like really had no idea what it was going to grow into, right? And that's what I think is so fascinating about it. Like he saw an opportunity. I think his story was that he was working at a law firm to, and he was the guy who had to pick up everyone's lunch, right? And he got to put it on his credit card and he realized he was earning some points off of everyone's food. And it was actually lucrative for him to pick up people's lunch for work. And so that turned into a a business idea that started with faxing, but uh, there was no way to know that it would evolve into what it evolved into today. Right. I mean, I think a a typical founder story and I've invested in a a ton of different startups is that the, the problem is, is oftentimes very close to what their experience is. Mother has experience as a challenge doing this, and she starts a company doing that. So Jason and Paul and Todd were all attorneys, worked at these law firms, ordering food late at night. So the, yes, the initial product was really uh, streamlining, uh, uh, building uh, inefficiency for law firms and, and banks. Uh, and then when you know high-speed internet access was more um, you know widely widely used at home right. it was only used at work and that was around 2004 that's when the consumer site really took off so the consumer site wasn't part of it but um I but see. you know quickly surpassed it within a few years got it yeah so i think that's what's interesting and you know i think this episode will have a lot of people listening who are salespeople who dream of starting their own company someday or maybe salespeople like me who did try to start their own company someday and then figured out how hard it was and, and failed miserably. But uh, looking back at your two stories and we'll dive into single platform because I think there was a bit of that there as well. It seems like to your point, founders kind of go into starting a company where they're, they're aiming to solve a problem, oftentimes a problem they've experienced themselves. 
But then the good founders are really good at just watching where the traction takes them, right? And seeing what the market wants and, and pivoting a little bit, little bit. And the product sort of, it kind of guides itself at a certain point. Would you ag agree with that for some companies? Yeah, I'd say that, uh, I think, and you can talk to Jason about it. The opportunity was always there for consumer, but I think the best, op best entrepreneurs will focus on solving one problem with one unique consumer um, type. Uh, and being really great at that and expanding it out. So, you know, I think when, when you joined single platform, we weren't selling to any, anyone else other than I think restaurants. Um, right. and, but you know, the, the idea of single platform could be applied to spas and salons and florists and, you know, doctors and, and auto shops, you know that better than almost anyone does. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, having learned at, 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 at Seamless, which was a very sales driven culture, uh, you want to test something by trying to see if you can sell it. Um, and then you can tune in and scale it. So I think that uh, a lot of the best entrepreneurs focus on being great at one thing. And I think Jason yeah. really was, was great at leading us to be a online food learning platform for law firms and banks and being the best and, and being world-class at it. And then knowing that we could uh, expand beyond that. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's why my experience at single platform was, was so beneficial. I, I literally, aside from missing the boat on the acquisition, monetarily, right? I, I came in at, I think the best time and I wouldn't trade it for anything because A, you guys were about to scale really fast, yeah, hire yeah. 10 plus people a month. So that means there's opportunity to grow. And I knew I was a bit older than most of the people that were joining with me. So I'm like, if I really take this serious and I did, and I knew like when you move home in a U-Haul at 26 years old, like you get another opportunity, like coming to work for you, you don't fuck it up. Right. And, and I was laser focused uh, and the opportunities just started to pour in. And, and the first one was what you just talked about was, you know, you and Adam talking about, Hey, we've got this product. Uh, we need to be able to sell it to more than just restaurants. And we need some people who can figure that out. And I remember spearheading that and, yeah. and it was the best learning experience, the most frustrating days of my life. No question. Right. Cause we would spend months calling landscapers that were a nightmare and was never going to work, but we had to plow through four weeks of trying it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then we would do maybe yoga studios next month and have a ton of success. And so we proved out, I, I think 20 or 50 plus verticals after, by the time I eventually left, but that's what I think really set me up for being able to go be a VP of sales because the amount of experience I had testing stuff condensed into like a nine month period in my leadership role is what most people probably take years to get the chance to do. So um, anyway, I thought I'd throw that in there, but anyway, so, all right. So you have this big exit on that point. Well, I think yeah, that sure. my key takeaway that I had from seamless was uh, prior to building anything, it was always uh, Josh Kaufman talking about the penny gap. You can give away free stuff all the time, but as soon as you try to charge a penny for it, you know, how many people are actually going to pay for it? And so I think that the, the, there was a, um, the culture at Seamless was uh, not if you build it, they will come. But if we sell it, then, then we'll build it. Uh, and we, and so I took that, that, that big learning piece and, and transitioned it over a single platform. So when you were on that, that was like a, what we call the SWAT team, which we had a, right. a, a Seamless as well. It was, okay, let's prove this before we roll out a whole team selling to landscapers, which is not going to work. Yeah. Uh, so I think we, we you know, Adam and you and others got really, uh, got really good at, at, at learning how to testing and tuning the model. Yeah, we eventually wrote, I, I remember when I wrote, I called it the single script. For those who are listening, everything at Single Platform was scripted out, but our original script was very much for restaurants. And I converted that into what I called a single script that just had all these fill in the blanks. Yeah. And you could absolutely sell it to anyone. And we just started going crazy testing it. It was a lot of fun. But um, all right, so you have this big exit. I imagine you were the first five or some odd people. You must have done well. So you left there 
probably in a very good financial place. Um, what was the plan from, from there? How, how long did it take you to say, I want to start my own company now? Did you know that right away? What sort of led you down that road? I was already starting uh, the company while I, was, while I was sort of ending my career at, at Seamless. Okay. Um, Corey I had, was actually full-time working for me. And then I hired, I had two uh, salespeople that were also working for me just uh, on commission alone. Uh, so, it. so you were I, planning your departure way before. I knew I wanted to do it. I, I knew what the idea was. I tested it myself um, and we just wanted to make sure that I was there for the earnout at, at, at Seamless. Uh, but I, didn't, I didn't take a single day off uh, when, you know, from going 100 miles per hour, seamless to 100 miles per hour, single platform. Got it. Okay. And so how did you approach starting single platform? This is coming from a guy who I did my two VP sales, or sorry, my one VP sales role after single platform. I got really cocky and I thought that I could go start my own company. And so I left doctor.com and I went and spent eight months at my computer putting together, you know, presentations, faking it till I make it, pitching angels, pitching VCs, pitching whoever I could get in touch with. And everyone had the same answer for me. They're like, Colin, I love you. I love your energy. You're going to crush it. Like, just call me back when you get 10 customers. Everyone yeah. had the same answer. And, and I realized pretty fast, like, all right, I need to build an MVP. I got to, I have to sell it. And I know I can sell it. I know I can get people to use it. Um, but building that MVP was so hard, man. Like figuring out, how to trust someone to build something that I can't oversee. Like I can't do weekly check-ins on a product team. I don't know what to look for. I don't know if they're making the right progress until the product's done and I can try to use it that I could do. But as you know, and so I knew I needed to find a technical co-founder and I wasn't able to find that person. And it got to the point where I was just burning so much money uh, that I, I threw in the towel and, and I said the hell with it. And I think I even spoke with you because I was considering outsourcing it uh, I think I spoke with you and a handful of other people and everyone was like, don't do it. Don't do it unless you have like a lot of money to spend. Like, it's not going to go well. And that scared the heck out of me. But, but you did that though for single platform, right? Like how did a sales guy approach building technology? So uh, my line of thinking was I'm not going to leave me seamless until I can, sh until I can actually know that until I'm positive that I can build a company out of this. And the only way I'll do that is by saying, okay, I want to make it so that I can sign up one customer per day that'll pay, you know, a few hundred dollars uh, to join this system that doesn't yet exist. Right. And there's, there's so, you know, being at first round seeing, I don't know how many hundreds or, or thousands of, of founders that had this idea. I'm like, well, have you sold it yet? You've gone out. So you're like, well, no, I talked to this person. They're interested. I talked to this person. They're interested. Everyone says they're going to be interested because it, it's such an awkward conversation saying like, you're like, hey, Wiley, do I like, do you like my shirt? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I like your shirt. Sure. Really nice shirt. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it's just an awkward thing to say, your shirt sucks. And, and no, I won't pay for it. But it's very easy for someone to say, oh, this sounds really interesting. Yeah, come back when you're live. And so that's when I know, okay, I, have, I found a founder here who's scared to actually sell. So for me, it was, I need to get to one customer a day that's willing to say, yes, I will pay for this. And I let them know, you know, we're not, it's not live right now. It will be live in a few months. You can either give me a credit card now or a check and I'll cash it then or I'll come back. But, but you did something very specific there, right? I remember the story uh, that you would go into restaurants. You had a PowerPoint put together, which was fake, right? The product didn't exist. You, you, you mocked it together. You made the presentation to restaurant owners. They did not know you didn't build it yet. And I think that was the key point, right? Is that you presented it as if you were going to ask them for a check. Again, if I remember the story correctly, yeah, yeah. and you actually would ask for the check and see if they were going to write it to you. And then you would say, hey, look, we actually haven't built this yet. I wanted to, to see how serious you were. Can I take this check, not cash it? 
And I think you collected X number of checks, right? And that was sort of your, your way to raising money. Is, is yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't as easy as that. I would say for the first you know, couple of months, it was me taking this PowerPoint slide out and being told no, but recognizing that they like slide two or slide four. And then I got rid of the other ones and put slide two and slide four up front and then went out again and then went out again. You know, I think meeting in person is really important because you can feel someone's energy. If they're starting yeah. to stay off in the distance, if they're not focusing or when they're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. They, they lean in. So I took all those different points, which on a website would be where are they clicking to find out more information? When do they ask this question? Okay, let's make sure I put that slide, you know, right right after this slide, because I know they commonly ask that question. And then after a few months, it was, yeah, I was getting a, you know, a business a day, really willing to take out their checkbook or, or, or a credit card. Um, and you know, I think it was, it was obvious that it was a mixture of what might be live now and what's it gonna look like in the future. Um, right. I let them know all these publishers weren't on board, but here are the types of publishers we're gonna be targeting and everything. And, uh, and I think almost, I, I don't remember any of them saying, no, they didn't want to do it. And so I think I probably got checks and credit card information from most of them. So at that point, I was ready to say, okay, you know what? I'll put my own money into building out this tech platform um, because I know if this thing is live and I'm able to sell it like I can right now, then I'm going to be able to fundraise. So that makes it a lot easier to decide to make a personal commitment with your time, with your money, because you know that people are going to buy it. How important would you say that doing those initial meetings face-to-face versus over the phone is? For, for new entrepreneurs today? Uh, I mean, it, it was, I think that you can do it over Zoom. Um, okay. Zoom wasn't around, so this is 2009. Yeah, so we didn't really I have the opportunity. Video conferencing, but a lot of restaurants probably didn't have that maybe high-speed internet access or didn't yeah. want to, but I think they're, they oftentimes are so ADD because there's so much stuff going on that I wanted to make sure I was in person. I think you can do it a lot of it over Zoom. Cool, cool. All right. So, so you start this company. What was, who were the, so you hired Corey initially, who were the first hires you made outside of that? Like when you left Seamless, you went full-time into this, you started pitching some restaurant owners, they're giving you checks. Uh, where do you go from there? Was it time to build the product or did you start bringing on some people into the team as well? Time to build the product and time to bring on more salespeople. So you wanted to start selling it before it was even built, even with like salespeople? Oh Yeah. And, and basically the way I did it was, I mean, I hadn't raised any capital and right. didn't, I, uh, so I said to all the salespeople, whatever you, whatever you kill, you eat, uh, which but what if, were they selling if it wasn't built yet? Or were they just pre-selling it? Oh, no, they were, they were pre-selling. So all okay. the knew, Hey, this launches in a few months Got um, it. and they would get the checks and we would cash them once it's live. Uh, but I, would, I felt comfortable paying out salespeople if they were able to get checks, obviously. That's uh, fascinating. Cause I feel like. I mean, you know more about this than I do, but in the VC space or just the tech space, like that's unusual, right? That a CEO's, you haven't even built it yet. And you're like, let's hire salespeople. We're going to pre-sell it. Like, I feel like tech founders who are not coming from a sales background would usually not do that, right? Well, so I'd say one of the most common things that being, so first rounds, early stage funds, you know, they, they backed Mirror and Uber and Warby Parker and Birchbox and single platform, a lot of, a lot of companies, a bunch of billion dollar exits companies. Uh, Blue Apron. One of the most common things we would see after a founder left was I'd hear one of the partners say, wow, love this idea. Um, if they only knew how to sell. Yeah. And it just, founders typically 
aren't the strongest salespeople because a lot of them are, are more engineers, not to say engineers can't sell, yeah. uh, but they were missing that superpower. Like, wow, if you were only there, we would do this. We could get this person to sell for them. We, we, we'd be all in. And so uh, I know that that was a, it was our, our strength. And I also wanted to go to a VC, not when I was trying to make promises of what we could do, but look what we've already done and we haven't even raised a dime. Uh, so That's the key. Yeah. Of, of our fundraising strategy. Uh, you know, Josh Koppelman, the founder of First Round, his first question is like, uh, what, what's your CAC? What's your cost to acquire a customer? And if you're selling local, which we were, the cost is usually really high. And so I wanted to be able to go to fundraise and say, yeah, I'm fundraising and not a dollar of it is going to go towards salespeople because our salespeople are cash flow positive in the first month that they're here, which is so unheard of in right. terms of like local sales and enterprise sales. So that was like, wow, they're not doing this to raise money to hire salespeople. That, that all that's going to like, you know, other departments, that's fantastic. So I knew that would be like a sort of our, our strength, especially considering I didn't have a technical co-founder. Right. How did you feel like you needed a technical co-founder? Like, did you spend time looking for one? Or did you just decide uh, I'm just going to go do this? over again? That is definitely one of the mistakes that I made. Okay. Um, I, I had the chops to sell to someone, but I, but I didn't. Uh, and, and at the time I thought we could, there was a, uh, a dev company that I was familiar with because I'd worked in that Seamus that I thought could build this thing for like 30,000. Um, yep. and they built a thing. A thing. <laughs> not yeah. a thing. And so, yes, I think I, I would have, you know, and if I hadn't hired a technical co-founder, uh, which I think I really should have, then I should have brought on, you know, someone on the board that has super strong technical chops and a product leader that can help me do the process of, of outsourcing the original technology. Uh, I did learn a lot through that process. Um, but yeah, if I were to do it again, I'd, it's definitely one thing I would do differently. Why do you think that you didn't do it? Did you not realize how important it was or did you just have sort of something inside of you that said like, I want to just be a solo founder? I think you do what you typically, you know, you said, how many kids do you want? Uh, you're like, well, usually people say the kids, the number of kids they had in their family, right? You just tend to like do what it, you're used to. And it's seamless that we were a sales driven team. Uh, and, uh, the, uh, the tech, the tech team was outsourced. So I saw Jason do this. They outsourced it. They outsourced for a percentage of the business. Uh, they eventually bought out that whole dev team and brought them on board and Rob became our CTO. So I was like, well, if they can do that, I can do it as well. So that makes so much sense as to why, because that carried over to me too. And I started to think I can do that. And I remember talking to you and you're like, well, if they told you it's going to cost 50 grand, it's probably going to cost 150 and it's yeah. still going to be half of what you initially thought that the first version would have you know, come out to be. Uh, so like you better have 200 grand and, and you still won't be happy with, with the. Yeah. And yeah. Everyone's disappointed in their initial product. I think the, the, the first moment I realized that it was a mistake was when I was pitching my like fifth, sixth VC. And the common piece of feedback was like, but you don't know how to, like, you don't have anyone on your team to build anything. And my point was like, we're not building the most difficult thing here um, at single platform. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely a gap. And a lot of VCs said no to me as a result. And a lot of will too, right now. I mean, the majority of deals, you don't have a tech co-founder or product lead. They're going to say no, unless you, you can, you're overcompensating in other ways. Yeah, that was the experience uh, that I had for sure. They're, they're like, you're, you're missing that other part. Go find it. Um, do you think that that happens in the reverse when you're a technical co-founder without a sales co-founder? I feel yeah, like maybe- By far the majority of the time is you have a technical founder and not someone who can sell. 
And they, the VCs don't seem to see that as much of an issue as the reverse, right? They just assume you'll hire a salesperson later. I say that in sales driven business, uh, sales where you have people doing sales, um, the head of sales is more important or someone with sales experience uh, than the head of product. And the reason why I say that is because you essentially, Colin, we're our head of product for building out verticals. Because you're going out and you're testing it just like a website. I always say like salespeople, are like early stage salespeople are like, are like your website. You get all these statistics on your website. Where are people going? Are they clicking on pricing? Are they clicking on this? What language do you want to have up top? Well, we want to put this language in, more people click. That's what your sales, your, your head of sales, your CRO or your, your sales driven co-founder is. They are your product because they're out there figuring out where are people clicking on during my presentation and yeah. now let's build a product around that. And uh, where could you get more money if you had another feature or, or yeah, something yeah, like that? Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I think the original salespeople are, are the product drivers for the company. <laughs> Got it. So this is maybe a good point to ask you an, an off topic question, but it, in the industry right now, there's a real, I think, problem with um, average tenure of VPs of sales, heads of sales. It's at, it's at 18 months uh, last time that the research was done. But do you have any thoughts on that? Do you have any sense of why? it's so low and, and why VPs of sales just get cycled in and out of companies. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll, to set the stage a little bit, like I think part of the reason is that just not everyone's cut out to be a VP of sales and that makes sense. But there's also this whole thing that like people look at a VP of sales as like, what stage of the company are you good for? Yep. And I think that that's total bullshit. I really do. Cause I think that a great VP of sales is going to adapt and continue to learn. But do you have any thoughts on like, why is that, a VC model today where they, you know, it's so strict that they look at your VP of sales. Oh, oh he hasn't, you know, done, uh, you know, he hasn't taken to a hundred million yet. We're at 50 mil now. He's not the right person. Why do they think like that? So, so I agree and I disagree with you. Uh, so I agree that you don't necessarily have to have that experience. Uh, you know, you know me and the people that we brought on to do things that had never done them before. I'm much more of a champion of, of, hiring someone who hasn't done VP level to do VP because they've got a chip on their shoulder. Like I think what ends up happening honestly is that because there's no, uh, there's a lack of um, high level sales talent on the founders teams. Uh, what ends up happening is they just say, okay, that person's done it. And to your point, VC say, okay, that person's done it. Get that person to join. And, and the challenge with that is that they bring in a VP who's basically like gone through the ranks and doesn't want to roll up their sleeves. They don't want to like, you know, you know, get involved in sales. They're used to like managing managers who are managing salespeople or managing SDRs. And so I think one challenge you have is the typical like, um, you know, number one draft pick problem. Whereas you look at a lot of number one draft picks that, that, that burn out. It's because they're like, they feel like they've already made it and they don't have that chip on, on their shoulder anymore. And I think v, uh, VPs of sales can often have that same sort of feeling of like, I've done this before. And so they don't have the same sort of sorts of hunger. Um, so I, I think so. So twofold one, I am a big believer on betting on people that had chips on their shoulders. Um, and, and the people that are drafting the third to fourth to fifth rounds, uh, who haven't quite done it before, like, like Adam Lieben and like yourself. Uh, but I understand why founders and VCs, uh, bet on VPs of sales that have done it before. It's because they have some sort of experience and the founding teams lack that. So, there's such a gap in the founding team's experience there. Um, but I do think that, that one of the biggest issues that 
once you're a VP of sales, you just want to go to another VP of sales job and you don't, you don't want to roll up your sleeves as often. Got it. Yeah. For me, like, <clears throat> Hey, I didn't want to go to another VP of sales job. I wanted to start my own company, but after I failed at that, I really wanted to be a VP of sales again. I was just hungry to do what I knew I could do, but I wanted to do it at a slightly bigger company, you know, slightly larger budget to spend and hire and things like that. But yeah, I found that it gets to a point where it's difficult to keep moving up and keep, you know, taking a company to the next stage because the bigger the businesses get and the more VC capital they have, uh, the more strict they are around, have you done this before? Have you done this before? And it's really hard to have that conversation and just say like, I didn't do this before I did it the first time and I did a great job, right? Like, so it's, it's sort of the same thing, but, but yeah, so. But, um, I, but I do think like your, your, your point around like um, which stage of the company, I do think that the majority of people are good for one to two stages and it's, it's far and few between that, that, that are good for all three. Uh, so like Kenny is someone I think he's great at all three stages and Matt and Pete, like they, they, they get really, um, they love the proving early on and we're all in, but I also think they can work in larger, much larger organizations, which I think that I am really good at the first two stages, not the third one. I think you divide them up when you say the first two. Yes. The the family stage, where there's, you know, one to 15 people, you're trying to prove out your model. Um, You're, you're, you know, going up and down like, Oh my God, this could work. Oh my God, this is terrible. Oh my God, this work. Oh my God, this is terrible. So it takes a really high level of, of communication between the, different departments, not departments, but between the different people. Uh, it's just like super scrappy. Then there's the second phase, the, the tribe phase where you're like, okay, we figured out, you know, let's say, let's say it's a restaurant, like the, the family stages, let's make a bunch of sandwiches, see which sandwich is popular. Oh my God, everyone loves this meatball sub, right? So like, okay, great. We're going to roll out a meatball sub place. And then the, the tuning stage, uh, which is the tribe stage, that's when it's like 15 people to 50 or 75 um, and you came on board during that time. You're like, okay, we, we know how to make an awesome sub. Now let's make, now let's figure out how we can like, you know, expand it to 15 to 30 different sub shops. Right. And then there's the next step up, which is, okay, now we want to scale it. Now we're not talking, let's get to 300 more shops. Let's get to 30,000 shops. And so usually, uh, people are good at one of those stages. Um, sometimes two, uh, rarely are they good at three. Uh, like oftentimes like when we had already scaled at, at single platform or at seamless, I'm bored out of my mind because I need to create change and I almost become disruptive in that environment. Uh, so I, I, I think that I'm best at the first stage, the ideation, the testing, uh, and then the tuning stage and starting to scale. But once it's like sort of scaled, I'm, I, I, I lose interest. I say usually people are on founding teams are more the um, jack of all trades uh, and the people that are, better later on are really good at this one thing. Yeah. I remember you said that. I think, I think I asked you, or I overheard someone ask you a long time ago, like how long will you do this for? How long will you stay at single platform? And I think you said until I get bored. Right. Yeah. And, and so I, I kind of, I think I have a little bit of that mindset too. And I see what you're saying. Cause like when I went to doctor.com, you come in, there's four salespeople. There's a lot to figure out. You know, you gotta, you gotta hammer down a script. You gotta have a repeatable process. You need a hiring process. You need to build out a culture and have traditions and routines. And then you have to like actually hire the people and develop them and get them running that engine. I remember about a year and a half in, it gets to that point where like I come into work every day and everything just kind of works. It just does itself. It runs its own engine. I have managers, I have directors, there's a process for everything. And I got bored. And, and that is when I sort of was, so I think I know what you mean now when it gets to the point of just keep repeating what we've built 
uh, that yeah. can be boring for people like and, us. So, so you're, you, know, you, you said something very quickly, but just like, you're like, oh, so I like, you know, wrote out the script and everything, but like that one piece there, very few people can do. Yeah. Like you are then, you're leading products, yeah. right? You're basically saying, this is what I want our website to look like. Here's what I want to emphasize. Very few people are good at that. And so more people can come in at that second stage and say, okay, I, I can listen to what you've done and start to repeat it. And it's most people are better at the third stage where it's like, there's no ambiguity. I know exactly where I'll be in three years. Just follow this script and I'll be able to make, you know, manager at this level and VP at this level. And so less people are, fewer people are good at that earlier stage stuff. I'm glad you brought that up because that, that was my next topic that I want to dive in on um, scripting, right? I've done it. I've been a guest on a few podcasts where we've talked about scripting and I always talk about single platform when it comes to that. Cause I think there's no better example of like why to use a script. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you walk me through that process? I, I, I mean, my understanding of it is that you and Adam, so Adam Liebman, who was your VP of sales that you hired, who was my boss. Um, you guys sat down and spent, I want to say nine or so months, like perfecting a script. Can you walk me through that process? And for, for everyone who's listening to, to just, to give a sense of, of how critical this was in building single platform. Um, first of all, when I walked in for my interview, I want to say there were maybe like two technical people in the office. And then there were like maybe 50 customer facing people between sales and account management. Like that was the company. Yeah. It was sales. And when you walk into that office and you hear everyone talking, you've, you hear everyone generally saying the same things and it's like a machine. And the more people you add, <laughs> You're literally saying the exact Actually same thing. Exact thing yeah. uh, and it was just unbelievable. It really was unbelievable. Um, and, and like, I had no idea what I was doing. I walked into that first week of training with Adam and like, the, the, there's a few things I want to dive into here. One is the script. And I think that it carries into the culture. And I, I can't think of a better word to use, but I say that it was kind of cult-like and I mean that in the best of ways. Yeah. Um, like we just all, like we would have taken bullets for each other. Like we were all yeah. just bred from the same cloth. And uh, I remember, you know, you put together a chant one day and you're like, when I say single, you say platform. And like, we're all screaming. We all walked away from that. We're like, what the fuck was that? Like, this is insane. You know, like we just were a part of this insanely tight knit group uh, that all still keep in touch today. Like there's alumni groups and stuff. And so anyway, so I, the reason I brought that up as I'm bringing up the topic of the script is because I actually think that the two go hand in hand and there was a level of, and then I want to back up to like how you built this with Adam, but coming in as a new hire and sitting through that training, I walked out of that first day, like chugging the Kool-Aid, like funneling the Kool-Aid, right? Not just drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, you know, we got to hear stories from you, from Kenny, from Pete, from, from the founding group. And Adam was so great at getting us all bought into this. And I realized through it that he had to be great at it because to convince a group of people coming straight out of college, they have to follow this script is actually really hard to do. Uh, especially when you're hiring people like me who think that they're super smart and they can always do things better. Um, so, I mean, let's rewind back. I want to give up with this great degree and I'm just being told to read. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but somehow you guys created a culture where we were actually excited to do that. We were so proud of it. And we would joke about like the lines of just like, you know, that we would use that worked on restaurant owners. Like people were like, oh, sorry, I don't have my wallet. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. I can hold. And like, we would sit there quiet and like, we thought this was a joke, but then they would pull out their wallet. Like they just lied to you two seconds ago and said they don't have their wallet. And like, there was so much of that baked into the way that we sold. So 
did you envision that from the start when you sat down to write a script with Adam or, or did it kind of just like you built something great and it became 10 times greater, like as it scaled? What, well, one of the like, things I learned at, at, at Seamless was uh, training is so important. Like you had one of the more critical roles in you know, scaling our, our team. I had such different reactions from uh, such different outcomes from salespeople that were out because it was out to out, 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 outdoor sales, um, outside sales, sorry, at, at Seamless. And I was like, what is going on? I was like, I need to listen to them and, and understand what exactly what they're saying. Because the difference between saying, yeah, and payment, well, what we do is we charge you your credit card every month, blah, blah, blah. You're like, well, you want to say charge. You want to say this is how we do payment and seamlessly. And so I think those little tweaks, those word tweaks, are, 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 they're, they're a big deal. So I learned that like, if I need to build a team that's seamless, they need to be saying the same thing. Just as if, I, I like comparing it to the website. What if you have, so you have a website, and what if every single time you went to, what if any time a customer went to your website, it had different words, different slogans, maybe the pricing button was over here, the, this button's over here, they didn't even talk about like a freemium, like that would be pandemonium, but that is what you have when you have salespeople that are going out and saying different things. Um, I really like that analogy. That I, I think that makes so much sense. Like, oh, they, this- what did you say about pricing? Right. Well, if you're a website, you're like, no one clicks on the pricing. Why didn't you bring pricing up, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. I remember watching Obama and thinking, this guy is the best at reading scripts I've ever seen. Because it feels like, because you know these politicians have to say over and over and over and over. Like, they're saying the same thing more than we said things at single platform. Right. But the way he says it. There's the so way, much emotion behind it. When he pauses, it's like he's saying it for the first time time like those pauses make a big difference yeah. so watching him and his tone and sometimes he'd speed up sometimes he'd tell a story you think he's telling you this story the first time but but he's he's not he's reading off a script and he says that script day in and day out and it's incredible what he does and so i think that's what we had we had a team of highly intelligent motivated enthusiastic people that were bought in to what we were building and selling and therefore, just like he's so good at that, I think our team were, was really good at reading off the script word for word, not in general, word for fucking word. Because uh, we knew if something wasn't working, we're like, well, you know, it's just like Bill Belichick when he's playing his coaching, he's like, do your job. If, if we have this play and you're supposed to go this way and the wide receiver goes this way, but instead this guy, instead of going over here, went here and then decided to do this. Like it has outcomes on like all the other players in the field. So now you don't know what worked and what didn't. Yeah. Do your job. If the script's not working, that's on us. Uh, but if you do a good job at, at, at your script, you're going to sell. It's so right. I want to emphasize for everyone, because what he just spoke about right there is I think for, for the naysayers and the disbelievers uh, in scripting, what Wiley just explained is that we, we had the script down to such a science that when someone wanted to make a change, and by the way, anyone could propose changes, right? We would have regular yeah. meetings where people had ideas and, and people had thoughts. The, the script was a living, breathing document, as we always called it. It had a date at the top left corner because we were constantly modifying it, but we were very careful with how we did that. If, someone, if we overheard someone just changing one word on the script, first of all, their manager would be like, why are you changing that one word, right? It yeah. wasn't like you had the flexibility to do that because we wanted to understand, is that one word a good change? Is that working better? Right. Um, or are you, you need to get back to the basics and, and get back to the script. And so, I mean, just to give people a sense of like the amount of time that we spent on this, 
we would literally just sit in rooms discussing one word changes or, or two word changes for an hour, two hours, three hours. And then we'd be like, all right, why don't we have one person test it? Like it was very, 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 very strict about it. And I think that that's why it worked so well, but that came from the top down that came from you and Adam. Like if you had just rolled out a script and just hired a bunch of people, I, like that wouldn't naturally be the case. What would naturally happen is everyone start changing the script and just taking their own liberties to do it. Yeah. Um, how did you start that culture? How did you create that level of seriousness from the beginning? Was, or did Adam do that? Did he pick that up from you? Where did that come from? I think it was both of us driving that process. Um, we, it was unique because we were two people that were so incredibly bonded to this concept. Um, and I remember talking to him about the onboarding your first sales team. So I'll do a bunch of talks around hiring and onboarding your first sales team, which is very different than onboarding your fifth or 10th or 20th sales team, yeah. especially if you're a founder, because those metrics of that first sales team are super critical. Uh, so, you know, there's a bunch of different tips in terms of like, you know, hire five people instead of three people or three people instead of, instead of one person. And um, we were extremely careful about that first crew of people that we brought on because we knew that they were then going to set the tone for everyone else that then came in. So setting that good example, we, we didn't want to settle for people that were B's and C's and maybe one A. We wanted all A's because then whoever came in next, they're like, well, we need to perform like that. The bar is set. Yeah. And the bar is set. So that was really important that we took the right amount, right amount of time. Um, and yeah, so I, th I think it took about nine months with him until we onboarded our first like sales team of inside so sales. You, so you, the CEO, the CEO and founder, you're sitting down with your VP of sales for nine months testing a script together. Yeah, and also it wasn't just to restaurants. This was only to pizzerias. Like it was only to delivery pizzeria places, not to Chinese restaurants and all the other restaurants. It was only to that because I, I wanted know that. to nail that metric first. And Why then did we, you start with pizza? Did you uh, just so feel like originally for him we started off with sports bars, uh, and then we went to pizza, um, and then we went to other delivery restaurants, and then higher end restaurants, and then restaurants that had less than ten locations, and then less than twenty five, and then we did enterprise. Got it. I just realized I didn't explain what single platform is. So for anyone who's listening, if you're a little bit lost in the dark, so single platform in a nutshell, uh, when you go to a, re a website like Google or Yelp or Yahoo, you're hungry, you're looking for a place to eat. Do you notice how I go right back into script mode? Like um, I can just, it's so weird. It was so long ago, but when you're looking for a place to eat and you Google the name of a restaurant or you Google Italian food back in the day before single platform existed, what you would see is a name, address, a phone number about the restaurant. And you want to look at the menu, right? That's how you're going to decide if you want to eat there. And the only menus that you could find back before single platform existed was usually a PDF of the menu, maybe a, maybe actual photograph of a menu that was out of date, hard to find. It wasn't indexed, uh, you know, it wasn't searchable. And so Wiley's idea was he said, all these business listings exist everywhere, right? There's, there's white pages, yellow pages, Google maps, Yahoo, uh, Yelp, uh, Foursquare, but they don't say enough about the business. And there should be in theory, just a little button that you could click on to view the menu of the restaurant. And, but the problem would be that that's very hard to keep up to date, right? There's hundreds of places that a restaurant is listed. And so single platform is one location where you manage your menu. And then they built partnerships with all of these other websites that the data would get syndicated out to. And so a restaurant could now go change the price of chicken parm inside single platform, click enter, and it gets pushed out to Google, uh, to Yelp everywhere. And so anyone listening to this, you've hundred percent looked at a single platform menu in your life, probably in the last week, you don't even realize you're doing it. They're all over the place. Um, but, but it's, it's just so crazy to think. I remember back then, like we would just joke about like you sold a hundred million dollar button. 
like like that in a nutshell like that's what you did and it's so incredible because like there's and you opened up an entire new wave of things happening like google like i think what you did with single platform turned into an evolution that started to happen on these sites you look at now the 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 side panel the business listing in google it's loaded with with information that's coming from third parties and you were the first person to do that um and now you can order food straight from these listings. And anyway, so, so anyhow, that, that's what single platform is for those who are listening. So, all right, where were we? So we're talking about scripting. So I'm curious to ask this because my thoughts on scripting have evolved quite a bit. And I talked about this in a podcast with Jeremy Donovan uh, from, uh, from Sales Loft. Because I left single platform and I went to go work for a very similar business, doctor.com. They were not selling restaurant menus. They were selling uh, something called a review hub, which is a device that patients can write a review for their doctor at the doctor's office. And it'll get syndicated out to all of the healthcare sites. So it's a very similar concept where you're collecting data and syndicating it out to these partner sites. And so that's why I got excited to go work there because I felt like, all right, I learned everything at single platform. I can go rubber stamp that process and this is going to be a breeze. Now it's not, and you can't rubber stamp anything. And I learned that pretty quickly that I felt so confident because we did, I think 50 different verticals at single platform. Of course, the only one we didn't do was medical. And I went to go work in medical. I'm like, it's gotta be the same. Like I've done this so many times and doctors have more money, but forget about it. It's a whole different world. And, and so my thoughts on scripting and everything have, have changed a lot. And it's not that I don't believe in scripting. It's that I believe the type of scripting and the way that you do it is very different based on what you're selling. At Single Platform, we're selling a single feature product. It was very simple to script and be extremely strict with and to train people very quickly on how to speak to it because there was, you could fit the amount of objections we'd get on like two or three pages of paper, right? When you start to switch into like dealing with plastic surgeons versus dentists versus uh, uh, orthopedics and, and pain management and like the lingo that these people will use can become very different and it can start to, you know, they're talking about different systems that they'd have to integrate into. Nonetheless, the sales much more complex. Uh, and then I went to air call where it gets even more complex and scripting became uh, a whole very, very, very different thing where salespeople have to have a different level of freedom to, to go off script because you can't possibly script everything that's going to come up. And so it, in your years of just, you know, uh, advising startups, working as, you know, as, as a partner at venture capital and whatnot, do you see that? Do you, do you see that as well? Do you say that like single platform is unique in, in a way that the scripting could be very strict and maybe in some companies actually, it's different? Yeah, I actually disagree. So, okay. I think any sale, any partnership, any acquisition, any fundraise, all of it can be scripted. Prior to single platform being acquired, Gail, um, Gail from Constant Contact, the CEO, came in, and I basically handed a script to Adam, to Steph, to, to Pete, to Kenny, to Randy, of here's how the conversation is going to go. Here's what I want you to say about your personal life. Here's what I want you to, what questions to ask. Kenny, I want you to tell the dodgeball story about how you met me because I want to I want to drag up X amount of time because I don't want to get to this part of our business. Right, we did everything. So wow, so and this so this was for those who are listening. Gail Goodman was the CEO of Constant Contact, who then bought Single Platform for a hundred million bucks. So wow, I didn't realize that. So that's genius. So before you even let her get in front of your team you were specifically telling them what to say. I didn't want to talk about retention at the time. Steph Lasker was the, was the person responsible for that at the time. 
So we sat in a certain order uh, where Steph was going to go last. Uh, Kenny was going to go after me and before Steph, depending on how much time is left. So we dictated the meeting and said, oh, you know, let's just, you know, kick off and you know, you, everyone go around and share who they are, blah, blah, blah. So her team did that. Our team did that. Kenny's second to last and knows how much time I wanted to take up. So here's the stories I wanted to tell so that we wouldn't have much time uh, on, on Stephanie Lasker's part of the business. Just because wow. we have a sol- as solid answer. So I think that whether it's an acquisition, because I scripted so much in, in the acquisition, presentations that I do, different meetings. Like Kenny is the best networker I've ever met. Uh, he says the same things. He asks the same questions, even though he's meeting with someone who's you know, high up at a car company versus this. So like, yeah, it's, it, having obvious, obvious knowledge across different industries is, is helpful, but I do think there's a very similar script and I think you can script out pretty much everything. Wow. That's so interesting to know that you did that. And it makes so much sense that uh, it carries us well. And, and I see what you're saying, by the way, and I don't want to imply that we didn't have scripts at those other companies. I know you did. did. I know. Uh, it wasn't just like, say whatever you want. No. It's no, how specific. Yeah, yeah. You have to say this word yeah. for word, these slides. I totally get it. Yes. I do yeah. think that, that the majority of impactful answers can be scripted out and scenarios yes. scripted out. Uh, even, you know, like I knew heading into a meeting because Kenny – tell me, Hey, this person had a baby nine months ago, blah, blah, blah. They're a Phillies fan and blah, blah, blah. So like we knew which questions we're going to hit, uh, right, right when we walked in the room. Yeah. So uh, the majority of it can, I think it just puts you in the driver's seat control. Cool. Conversation. cool. So I want to talk about the, you know, more about pitching constant contact, how that all came about. Cause that story is incredible. Before we dive into that, <clears throat> I mean, you and Kenny, it's, it, you just brought up Kenny and it made me think about this. Like, you guys are easily the most humble and likable people I've ever met in my entire life. And I, and I mean that I'm not like buttering you up cause you're on this episode. Like you guys have a level of charisma that is, is just so uncommon. Um, and I don't know if it reads through the podcast and people are picking up on this, but when I met you guys and you came in, uh, you did, I think an hour talk, each of you to the, to the new hire class in our first couple days of training. And you just tell your life story similar to the way you just mapped out, like, the way you tell these stories to Gail. And I didn't realize how much thought I guess went into the preparation behind that, but now it makes a lot of sense. And so I'm curious, like, is this a part of your strategy? Like are you actually consciously creating this incredibly humble, kind personality? Like is, is there an effort that goes into that for you guys? Because you know, strategically uh, like people like that and they want to be around people like that, or is it just happen to be supernatural for the both of you and it's just who you are? Or are you conscious of that? Like, is there an effort there? So I appreciate it. I, I think, th- I think there's, there's a combination there. Um, I do think that, that uh, there's an element of self-deprecation that can be really helpful. Um, and so, yes, the, your onboarding meeting, everything I said was word for word was scripted out. Well, so, I learned that after I got into training and I heard the story a hundred times. Like, what, like he has this down to his science. Yeah, and I think part of it is like, yes, like in part, part of a meeting, you want to create some sort of human connection um, that, this, that what this person's done is attainable for you as well. And so I learned that when I was younger. So I was like learning disabled. I really struggled reading. School was really difficult for me. I went to a really good school and everyone around me was so much smarter. It just made me feel so insecure because I, I could never be the smartest person in the room. In fact, I always knew I wasn't the smartest person in the room because usually I was taking a math class of like, kids the year below me, right? I just, I I grew up thinking I was stupid. And so, and and I don't think I'm stupid. I just know that I'm not smart in a lot of other ways that people typically are. And so what I recognized was 
for such a long time, I was so hard on myself about, about that and, and was, was insecure, whether it would be with, with, uh, with my relationships or, or working relationships or personal relationships. And then at a certain point, I realized, I was like, I, I don't need to be great at all those things. And in fact, when you, when you come out and you're just like, I can't do any of this, uh, pe- people feel like they can trust you more. You know, they're like, okay, I can relate to that because I can't do everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, one of my friends, Irving Fing, is the CEO of Bowery Farms, you know, they're like, raised hundreds of millions of dollars. The guy's, he's going to be on the cover of Time magazine probably next year. He is brilliant, perfect score SAT. I cannot do what he does. The guy's off the charts brilliant. I know that's not me. And so I think at a certain point in my life, I realized I can't be so hard on myself for not being able to do those things. I need to appreciate what I get energy from and what I'm good at. And I think that when you come to a point in your career where you've achieved a certain amount of things, uh, people will look up to you, um, but they also want to know you're relatable. So I think the combination of being able to be, um, to talk about your experience, but also feel like relatable is, is, a, is a responsibility that I think that most leaders should have. Like the leaders that stand up and they're like, I knew exactly what to do from the beginning. I was never scared. It just drives me crazy. And that's why I share those stories in an onboarding meeting of how I was scared day in, day out that I didn't think we were going to make it how I made all the mistakes that I made because making mistakes is part of the learning process. So I think that, that that was the kind of culture that we wanted to create, which is a culture of like learning uh, and open communication um, and growth. And so I think that that just comes out when we meet people because we know the most effective way to have a conversation with someone is not to come off like you're up here. It's to come up and say like, listen, we're all fucking human. We're all insecure. I'm still insecure about so many different things. And, and that's crazy to me to even think, by the way, like, like how can you be insecure about anything and i know anyone who's watching this right now you're the best looking guy in the world you're fucking rich you're successful you're humble but like and i'm highlighting this now not to put you on the spot i know it probably makes you uncomfortable but because i think you just made a great point there that can make everyone feel a little bit more comfortable out themselves is like even after your life and all of your success you still have insecurities. You're still human. Yeah, you know, you know something I, I realized, I think it was like only a couple years ago that I didn't like love myself enough. You're, you get so hard on yourself. And I think it can be a, a good driver is like being relentless on being better and, and improving and stuff. Yeah. And part of that comes from like, and I used to watch that. I was an all-American wrestler in high school. And I used to watch my wrestling matches and I, I would hate, my, I hate watching myself wrestle because I noticed all these mistakes. So I think there's a good part of, of wanting to improve um that will drive and make you get to a certain point but it's also like there's this uh what i've noticed with a lot of people is like uh they don't love themselves enough like you need to allow yourself to say you know what like i'm a good human like i'm I'm trying my hardest and i think we all can especially in new york city when there's always someone next to you that's done x more or raised this or sold this it's so easy for you to say oh but i'm not that and so i think that like being confident in what you're good at and what you're not good at. Um, and frankly, we're, I'm, not, I'm good at like two things and, and releasing that. You know, I met the founder of uh, Meetup, um, who, uh, Scott, and uh, he, there's a short, quick story, but so he, uh, when I met him, I was, I was like, it was actually when I first moved to New York City. And he noticed that I was like tr- trying to do too many things and trying to like, ch- you know, puff my chest out. And he knew that I was, I had some sort of learning disability and he was dyslexic. And he shared with me this article in the New York Times that said, um, one of the most common uh, traits between CEOs of Fortune 500 companies was that they had some sort of learning disability. And he said in this New York article, talked about how the reason why is because they can't do what everyone else can do. Mm -hmm. So they had to learn how to identify talent and onboard them. 
Um, and so I, I, I realized I, I don't have to be good at everything. I can be good at you know a, a couple things. And I think as soon as you start to do that, it releases this like tension in the air. Kenny is a very successful person, has done a ton of stuff since he was like a, even a teenager, but he's a very humble person because I think he knows, hey, listen, I'm good at some things, I'm not good at some things, and he's accepting of that. So therefore he can have good relationships with people in general. Um, and he's so good at that. He's, he's the so best good, man. man. It's I, really I mean, unbelievable what, how, how good he is. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, I don't know, think you give yourself enough credit because I bulk you and Kenny into the same thing. Like I remember just after meeting you guys, I'm like, this is something, first of all, so similar about these two guys. They're also very different people, but like you just, you guys have this way of just touching people in such a short amount of time that when you walk out of that room after having a conversation, like you're just like, fuck, like that, like I just want to be around that person more, you know, like they just are fucking positive. They feel good. And you, I think you, you touched on it there. Like you have to love yourself. You got people walk out of a room being with you. Like you feel like, you guys have that level of confidence. So I was really surprised to hear you say that you have insecurities. Um, well, do you have advice for that? I mean, so like, how stuff. do you deal with it? I like, I lean into it. I talk about it. You're like, you just like, just like loving yourself in general. Like I, I, one of my goals for, for last year was to allow myself to love myself more. And it sounds like so cheesy and so stupid, but it's like, you know, you get up, you look at yourself in the mirror, you get up and you compare yourself to this, compare yourself to that. Where, where do I want to get to? And I think it's so often, especially in New York City, we have a hard time just appreciating where we're at. You know, my, uh, someone, a friend of mine a while ago said, um, uh, what would your 10 year old self say to you if, you if you could see yourself right now? And right, it's like my 10 year old self would be like, holy shit, this is great. You have an amazing life, right? Yeah. So I, I think that even like my 20s and like, you know, what you're doing early early at single platform where you're proving out all these, you came as a salesperson, you took over training, then onboarded all these teams and took over the SWAT team. And like your 10 year old self would be like, holy shit, living in New York City, he's fucking dominating at this great company. Look how he's proving himself. And like, you know, we should all just be a little bit nicer to ourselves sometimes. So I found that the more sort of like, not self-deprecating, but the more I lean into things that I'm insecure about, the more oftentimes people will say, oh yeah, me too. I think a big part of that came from camp because, you know, so I run this nonprofit summer camp for kids who have lost uh, their parents ages eight to 15. I lost my dad when I was young. Nobody talks about that. No one talks about like losing your parents when you're young in, in conversations. And I found that, you know, as being a, a board member of this, of this camp and this nonprofit and a volunteer, um, I had this necklace and I said my name on it from camp. And people would ask me about the necklace and I would, I would say, oh, actually my dad died when I was 16 years old, blah, 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 which I never used to talk about before. And all of a sudden you see, you see people, especially people who have lost someone, they're like, no way, I lost my dad too. Or I lost my mom too. And they're like, almost excited about it. I was like, wow, the more I share, the more people feel connected to me. And so now I'm just like willing to talk about, you know, like anything. And I'm certainly more self-deprecating now than I've ever been. And it's just, you know, I don't know. It's a way to, to laugh at yourself and also enjoy life more. That's incredible advice. So for those who are listening, like if you have an insecurity, it sounds like talking about it will open the doors to finding out other people are, are similar. And, and then that helps <laughs> you. Know, you know, I wore like Crocs in around the office. Like people used to make fun of me for that. I loved it. it's funny you say that because when i left single platform i remember i was so casual i got so used to literally wearing flip-flops and whatever to the office i think i went to like my next job interviews dressed like such a schlub and i didn't even realize and i actually think like people were surprised i remember they said after i got hired at doctor.com they're like man you came into your interview in jeans in like 
I don't know, like falling off like loafers and like an unbuttoned shirt. And I was just like, (laughs) I was like, that was so normal at our last company, but no, I I went with it. And still to this day, like, like I I just (laughs) rode that out, but that definitely came from, from you guys. And it's like, I think people look to the top, right? Whatever the CEO wears is what's acceptable in the office. Uh, and so, but that was awesome at single platform. Like we literally could come in there. Like we just came back from the beach. I remember when, when you hired the first HR person to come in there story for another day, but, uh, talk about like cultural shock for her to come in and see we're in tank tops that say like fuck on them and weird stuff. Like, and no one cared, right. We were just making money, having fun. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess I had a little tunnel vision coming out of that, but, um, Cool. So look, we've got, that's great advice, man. I'm glad we threw that in there because uh, it's not just New York, right? It's, it's the world today. Like we're, we're on social media, who has the most followers, who gets the most likes, who has the the best pictures on LinkedIn, who has the best resume, the best this, that, Uh, but we're all insecure and, and hearing it from you. I mean, it just made me feel good. So I'm glad that we got that bit in there. And so um, we've got 15 minutes to to wrap it up. I want to make sure that we can, can cover a little bit of how you sold the business for a hundred million. sounds like we touched a little bit on how, how you made those pitches and, and how orchestrated that was. Uh, but then I want to find out, <clears throat> you know, what, what, uh, what happened after single platform. I know it's a lot to cram into 15 minutes, but uh, what, what would be the highlights and the, and the lessons of, you know, how you sold the business and to set the stage, you were not looking to sell the business. You were looking to raise, I think a series B, I think you were close to her $17 million round of fund. I met this guy named Harry Weller who, who had us funded and sat on the board of Groupon until it went public. He was like the guy who signed a term sheet with him to do a $17 million round of funding. Uh, We were supposed to close. It was delayed because they were closing their funds. They needed to wait about a month. Um, And in between that time and the the closing, uh, there was an article written about us in Forbes magazine. Uh, The guy who wrote the article was, uh, was actually hired as a salesperson for a single platform and then called me up the day before and said he couldn't do it because he was going to work for Forbes magazine. I said, totally understand, you know, hopefully write an article about us someday. So he's very junior, he's probably 22 years old. Um, really good, really good guy. So he, uh, he's writing this article and the editor really likes this the, the article and ends up making it like a four page spread in Forbes magazine. So they write about us. Um, and uh, it was, it was in April of 2012, and um, someone must have bought this Forbes magazine in Boston, left it on, you know, two stops later. This guy from Constant Contact gets on, sits down, and there's the Forbes magazine, reads the article, and walks into our office that day. And, uh, and he's like, you know, I, I would like to meet with the CEO. I was busy. Kenny met with them. And then Kenny said, Wiley, well, you should really meet with them. So I met with him. And he's like, we're, thinking, we're interested in acquiring your business. I asked him for how long he's been thinking about it. He said, well, actually, just today, I picked up the magazine. And uh, he said, you know, what would make it worth your while? And I, I gave him a, a price that was a hefty price. because We had signed a term sheet that was that price that uh, valued us at $65 million. So I said, $65 million up front. And then in order to get our investors across the goal line, I want to get to $100 million. Um, and I also want to vest everyone's options because everyone had been there for mostly for under a year. Uh, we want to keep the company name. I listed out a bunch of things because I didn't think this was going to happen. And, uh, but if it did, then fantastic. And he said, that sounds reasonable. And so the next day I flew up to constant contact and we signed an LY within two weeks, um, and and sold the business within like two months or a month and a half from that. So I always think about there's some random person, man or woman who was in Boston South station that bought that Forbes magazine that if they thankfully 
Thankfully, they didn't find it that interesting that they left it on the, on the seat next to them. <laughs> Imagine if there was actually a good article in there and not an article about us, uh, you know, what would have happened? And yeah, I, I think you, you hear those stories about startups and it's like, it sounds like a crazy story. Um, but I, I, you hear it all the time. I heard it all the time at first round, like, oh, this deal happened because this person was at this event and met this person or whatever, you know, just, just like some crazy chain of events. The fact is, what is it? Uh, to, JFK said, I, I find the, the, the harder I work, the more luck I seem to have. And I think we were just working our asses off uh, to build the best company we, we could build. Um, and we met a company that needed to be able to tell a story about being consumer facing, which Constant Contact wasn't at the time. Um, so we sold the business and you know everyone made out and made a bunch of millionaires out of the team. And it was, it was, uh, it was an unbelievably life-changing event for, for a lot of people. I'm very thankful for it. And the business single platform was doing very little revenue at the time, right? Was it less than a million of ARR at the time? <laughs> yes, it was, it was about 300,000. <laughs> I mean, that's the, I, there's so many amazing parts of the story, but I mean, in SaaS, month, month we, we, we did 30,000 in, in revenue. In I mean, it's, it's insane, right? Like, do you- And not ARR, it was MRR because- we were churning customers. So there's no way, we were probably at 100,000 ARR. Yeah, anyways. So, yeah. Oh, so you were at 300,000 of MRR? Yes. Got it. No, Got no, it. no, okay. Yeah, monthly recurring revenue, uh, an annualized rate of 30. So we did 30,000. Oh, okay, okay. So it was ARR, but, but there was a lot of churn, but okay. So that's, I, wouldn't, I mean. I wouldn't consider ARR because of the churn. So yeah, I we see, did. I see. <laughs> But it's not times 12. It's not 300K times 12, yeah, like the business. So that's absurd, right? Maybe you'll see a 10 to 15 multiple on, on startup valuations. Uh, and, and I mean, this is unheard of. Yeah, I mean, it, it is and it's not. So, so the, you know, the, the testing phase, the tuning phase, and the scaling phase, those are the when you do all your biggest um, fundraises and also the biggest acquisitions come into play. So... Some companies are acquired even before the testing phase is complete because people are like, this is a fucking huge thing. We want it. We want the yep. team. We want you to build this for us. Um, some people buy it when you're tuning it. And for us, we are in a position where, yeah, the story that we told was, yeah, we're about to start scaling this thing. So buy now or this thing's going to get really expensive one year from now. Right. Um, Already, it was going to go from like a you know a, a pre-money valuation of like thirteen million to sixty-five because that was our 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 our, our Series A round. I had us at a thirteen million round, a thirteen million dollar uh, price. Um, and so, like by now, our shit's going to be expensive. We've proven out the model. All we need to do is onboard salespeople. And that was really, for the most part, what we needed to do. Was there any part of you at this time that was thinking? Wow, we're doing this little bit of revenue. We've only been around for a couple of years. They're making this big offer was there any part of you that said, I got to hold on to this. It's going to be worth so much more. No, no. <laughs> Good. Right. I, I got asked if, if, if it was like a year, uh, nine months to a year later, then, then yeah, I would have thought that. But the truth is we had eight salespeople at the time. Yeah. The day that we acquired, we had 15 more just because we had onboarded 15 salespeople the day before. Yeah. But at that point we had eight salespeople with two sales teams. Like we were far from proving, from proving or disproving whatever our biggest hypotheses were. Yeah. Um, we, there was a lot of risk that still needed to, like we were gonna have to raise a lot more money. There was competitors that were in the market. Um, the, 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 the value that they were paying considering the amount of revenue, it was like no part of me said, 
wow, I, I might regret that. And I, I don't. Um, I, I actually believe it was the right decision. I think it would have been a harder decision if it was, you know, a year later. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, you definitely made the right decision. There's no question. I just, I think back to if I'm in that spot and like, there's gotta be something that just confuses you a little bit when someone's making this type of an offer out of the blue, like you were out on the road trying to raise a series B and someone's all of a sudden like, we'll buy this thing. And, and you, you're submerged in all the problems of the business every day. So that's like a, a real change of pace to get that phone call of like, Oh my God, I had no idea we we're even near the finish line. And here it is. It wasn't until like three months before that, that I thought that we were going to make it. Yeah. You know, when we signed Google, like up to, up to that point, I thought like, I knew that we had a good idea. I didn't think we had enough, enough time. So that, that the Vince Lombardi quote, which he says, uh, we'd win every game if, you know, if we, we didn't run out of time, but football games have, you know, fourth quarters and they run out of time and that's it. Otherwise, you know, if the time went on forever. Patriots win every single game, but they don't right? Because they're only four quarters. And so I think that like with a startup, I believe in the idea, didn't know if we'd have enough time. So we eliminated a decent amount of risk, but by the time constant contact came around, there was too much risk still. What does it feel like to wake up and look at your bank account for the first time and see that you're a millionaire? Uh, so I remember, and I remember for the first, I mean, even after after the seamless acquisition and single platform acquisition, I, I was just still scared. It, it, it was some weight had been lifted off my shoulder. I knew I could take care of my family's debt. I could take care of my mom. I could take care of my sister and everything. Um, you know, I, the, I bought a, you know, more socks because I had holes in my socks. I bought a mount on my TV and bought a, a laundry machine. Um, it's never been a very material thing for me. It was for me, it was, I grew up with, you know, middle class. We lost all my money when my dad got sick. We had electricity being churned off. I lived in a, in a relatively affluent neighborhood and was the poorest kid that went to the school and, uh, you know, moved to New York City with nothing. And so I just, for me, it wasn't, oh my God, I'm rich. It was like, I don't need to worry as much. Um, it wasn't like, oh my God, I I'm, can go spend money on stuff. You know me, I still wear the yeah. same t-shirts every single day. Uh, I put this on to look a little bit respectful for you. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I, it's, uh, so it, it, it it was certainly celebratory um, in the sense that like also all these other people were made, made a lot of money and that was fantastic. Uh, but it was more of a, a relief than a holy cow and rich. Yeah. And I, I remember too, you, you made sure that everyone got taken care of, right? Everyone who was already at the company, you mentioned it before, but that's a big deal that a lot of founders would not maybe, t you know, put their whole, acquisition on the line to say that like, I'm not selling this company to you unless you fully vest all of the equity that's, that's been, uh, uh, issued. Like that's very unusual. And you hear stories all the time of founders doing the complete opposite where they're just completely yeah. greedy and, and they, comp they screw over everyone. Like, I think, I think Skype laid off like a huge portion of their employees yeah. right before they were acquired to, to essentially screw them out of the equity. And you did the opposite. Like you wanted to make sure everyone was taken care of. Um, it's just, says a, a, another number about who you are. And, and then I think that that's carried you into what's happened or helped carry you into things that have happened after uh, single platform, right? Because you, you kind of built the single platform mafia that I think we used to call it. And you guys have, have gone on to do other things, different investments and whatnot. So I know we've got like barely any time left here. I don't know if you have a hard stop, but uh, do you have time to, to dive I've into a little bit? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. So, so after single platform, you know, you finally, you phased yourself out. You guys had buyouts. You, I think you got bored and, and you decided to move on and, and go work with, uh, with first round capital. What was that like for you? Yeah, for me, it was an incredible learning experience. You know, first round is the best early stage fund in the world. They're investing in people at the idea stage and maybe a little traction. Um, and so, you know, imagine being in the room when Travis pitched Uber to first round. He said, here, I had this idea of you push a button and that's all it was. Um, and I, you're, in those, you're, you're in that room with those kinds of people and you're like, it's super inspiring uh, to be in a room because if you're in that room, it means you have a big fucking idea. And uh, usually it means there's a lot of brick walls that you have up against you. And so you're meeting with people that are, are saying, I have this massive idea and I think this super unique product sounds crazy, but it might just make sense. And so to be in that room across all these different categories, you know, I met with a, a, a 19 year old, he was, no, so he wasn't 19, he was like 20, he was in his early 20s. He just graduated from college. His dad had a brain tumor, was gonna die, was getting like two months left to live. And he had this hypothesis that if you, if you read all these books within a couple of weeks, had this hypothesis if you combine this, you know, one drug medication with this other drug medication, it could kill the tumor. He went to his dad, his dad was like, uh, his dad's doctor was like, don't do this, don't do this. You can't be on all these other trial meds and do this. His dad said, fuck it, I'm gonna die anyways. They do this, uh, they take a piece of the tumor, um, put it into a, 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 a mouse, and they give the mouse the medication, and the tumor's gone. So then they give his dad the medication, and the tumor's gone in two weeks. Just gone, gone. Wow. So now we're meeting with him. He, like a month or two later, after he just saved his dad's life, he has no medical background, and he's like, big problem, cancer, right? I've got something I think is really unique. What if this works? And so, you know, it wasn't every day you're meeting with someone who's, you know, solving cancer for their dad and everything, but yeah. like you're meeting with people that say, I have this crazy fucking idea that most people don't think that they can do, but I think I can. So I was in a room with all these amazing founders, uh, funding them, investing in them, sitting on boards across all these different categories. And it was a way for me to say, okay, you know, do I want to be an investor also, or do I just want to go back to starting a company? And eventually I decided I want to go back to starting a company, but funded a ton of companies, sat on a bunch of boards, um, I don't know how many companies have invested in probably like 70 or so now at this point. Um, and it's, I, I love working with, working with uh, early stage founders. Has that been net positive for you so far, investing in startups? Yeah. That's good. Good. Yeah. And you know, it's typically like a seven year. So like a bunch of my bets that I placed early on over the last like two years are now starting to really like come to fruition and are having exits and everything. Um, but yeah, there's some, there's some, there's some big ones there. It's, it's like, is that the, is that the bulk of your investment strategy today with, with your, your wealth? Are you focused mostly on startups? You're very diversified. Uh, there's a, a small, I mean, I consider it a big, a big amount, but it is a small amount compared to what I own. Um, it's a small portion of what I own. Uh, I don't consider myself a professional, professional investor. Um, and if I see really unique things, then I'll invest in it. But I've definitely slowed down considerably. Do you play the stock market? Uh, I, I did, yes, but I, I, I don't really anymore. I mean, I'm pretty much all Domino's, Amazon, Papa John's, Apple. Uh, but like, chips. I've been long on, on, on Domino's and, uh, and Amazon. And Domino's is probably my biggest bet probably you know, 10 years ago because they're really a technology-driven company. And also have the experience from Slice and everything like that. But other than that, no, I don't. 
Got it. Cool. All right. So we're up on time. I, I, I just want to kind of close the loop on your life story a, a bit. So um, he ended up, you ended up leaving uh, first round to start a company called Good Uncle, uh, which is in the, in the food space as well. I think you pivoted a little bit. Originally, you were licensing, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to summarize. You were licensing top recipes from famous restaurants. And the idea was to be able to bring uh, you know, a dish that you can normally only get in New York City into other uh, areas, other suburban areas, college towns. Uh, and then it turned more into, I think, of kind of this, this uh, college-style you know, uh, food drop-off system where yeah. college kids can now get access to much better food uh, at probably a, a more affordable rate. They don't have to eat at the same couple of restaurants every day and it gets dropped off on campus. And you ended up selling that yet again to Aramark, right? Yep, yeah, to Aramark. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a big success, but we were acquired. It's actually booming now because Aramark runs all these cafeterias for, for colleges. So Matt, my co-founder, is still there. The business is booming. It's great. Um, yeah, You're still did. working for, for Good Uncle? I left okay. almost a year ago. Almost a year. I think in January. Yeah, January of this year I left. Why did you choose to sell so early? Was it just there were a lot of problems and you felt Aramark could handle them better than you? Or So, so when you're looking at a company uh, to invest or to start, there's like four typical questions you ask. How big is the market, right? Because if it's not a big market, not going to be a big outcome. How unique is the product? Um, is this the team to solve it? And then is, 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 uh, how's the progress so far? So is this a big market? Food's a massive market. Wasn't, wasn't worried about that. Um, did we have a unique insight? Yes, I believe we had a unique insight. I thought we had the team. We had an incredibly talented team. Um, and we started off in Syracuse, and it was booming. Like, we just completely took off. The difficulty with building a restaurant business is you need to actually build. So you need to find real estate. It takes, like, you know, eight months to a year to build out. It's hard to do the test tune scale thing because yeah. by the time you're trying to tune, you're now millions of dollars into your second and third location. And so what we learned was after we were booming at our Syracuse location, we did our Series A and things were taking off. We built our next two locations. They did not take off. We did exactly what we did in Syracuse. We said, okay, we just need to tune the model. Little tweaks. We're like, holy shit, this is not little tweaks. We need to change the whole model. Yeah. Because what we didn't realize was Syracuse is an anomaly for a bunch of different reasons that we didn't know about. So we changed the model and went to the subscription service for college students and went, went out to fundraise. And then what we ultimately realized was it wasn't that it wasn't a unique product or, or that we didn't have the team or that we didn't have made progress. It was actually the first one, which is the most critical one. The market wasn't big enough because when you break down a college market, it's 38 weeks out of 50, 38 weeks out of the year that the college students are even there. The most affluent students who you're targeting, X percent of them are in fraternities and sororities with, with chefs. X percent of them are going away their junior year to go abroad. Um, X percent of them are going to different events during the week and during the weekend where they're not eating. So basically you end up with like 20 quality weeks. And when you're talking about that amount of weeks, it's, it's, it's really hard to build a big business out of it. So we decided, you know what? This isn't going to be a big business. I can't raise a serious C around this. Let's sell this thing. And, and we did because we knew it could only be big unless we partnered with Aramark or, or Sodexo, which it is. And now it can be a multi hundred million dollar company, but it could never be without integrating with the college cafeteria services. Got it. That makes sense. Um, cool. Uh, I wanted to ask you real quick, if you have one minute, just if you have just a number one piece of sales advice for people who are getting into sales, um, it's just starting out. What's the number one piece of advice that you give to them? Uh, 
So I'll, I'll combine two pieces of advice. Um, okay. It would be to uh, so I think storytelling is the most important thing that you can do. Whether you're a leader, a sales leader, marketing, ops, fundraising, you know, onboarding people, trying to sell to people, um, storytelling is really important. But I think uh, personality-based storytelling is even more important. So. Um, identifying the personality type of the person that you're meeting with. So you know, we like to go with the four personality types, a controller who just wants answers to do it quickly, persuader, usually high energy, enthusiastic, um, wants to, you know, wants to know that it's more like a dreamer, um, wants to be up on stage. You have the uh, analyzer who's all about st st statistics, doesn't want to be sold to once just wants data and you have a stabilizer who, who, gen, who genuinely just cares about how everyone else feels and wants everyone to be happy so i think learning how to identify which personality type that person is that you're meeting with and then storytelling so that they can they can uh, consume the information in the right way so if you are a uh, um, an analyzer, someone who just likes data, me coming in and saying, oh my God, we're going to build the big, biggest company ever. We're going to scale. We're going to grow to this, blah, 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 blah. It is overwhelming to an analyzer. So you need to go in a, in a chronological order and give data to back up that story. So I think identifying what personality type the person is that you're talking with um, and then adapting your storytelling to fit that so that they can consume uh, the information that will then enable them to sign up or to, to buy. Brilliant. I, I love that. Um, lastly, uh, what are you working on now? Are you doing anything? Anything you want to promote or plug? What's, uh, what's day in the life? Relatively close to, but it's probably going to be another another few months. I got really, okay. uh, I got in this burn accident about a year ago. I wasn't able to leave my home. So I started painting a lot. So I'm doing a decent amount of like creative work, uh, which I never did before. Um, but uh, I'd say over the next like few months, then I'll have some more news to report. We'll have to bring you back on. Yeah. Awesome, man. Awesome. Thanks so much, Wiley. This is incredible. Okay, we got man. so many good nuggets here. Um, good to catch up and uh, we'll talk soon, man. I right, see you, buddy. Congrats. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.